Well, I confess I am a sucker for a good movie monologue. Um, two of my favorite movie monologues in film history are from the movie Patton and the movie Braveheart. And I'm betting if you know those movies, you know exactly the monologues that I'm referring to. Uh, the first one, uh, George C. Scott plays Patton, and he's standing in front of a giant American flag, like three times taller than him, and he's addressing his troops during World War II. They're preparing to go into battle. Well, the Braveheart monologue is similar. It's a warrior, William Wallace, preparing to go into battle, and he is encouraging and motivating his troops for what they're about to face. It occurred to me recently that both of these monologues have a lot of similarities. They're trying to compel their troops to fight well for something worthy fighting for. The World War II Patton monologue is telling the people, you're going to have to face hardship. In fact, Patton tells his troops, some of you are going to die. You're going to turn to the person next to you, and he's going to be gone, dead. He uses pretty gritty language to say that. William Wallace says the same. He says, many of you might have to die. The men are wondering, well, yeah, isn't it better to live? He goes, no. Wouldn't you be willing to trade all the days from now until the day you would be on your deathbed for a chance to come back and fight for freedom, essentially, is what he argues. What's interesting is that these speeches are supposed to be motivating. They're supposed to compel the troops to fight hard in the battle. They're supposed to be helped by this. They're supposed to be encouraged by these monologues that are given. And yet, it's interesting to note that both of these leaders in their discourse are telling the guys who are hearing in their audience, many of you are about to die. And that's supposed to be motivating. Isn't that interesting if you think about it like that? The motivational speech, the, the one that, that gets you kind of the hair on the back of your neck stands up and gets you guys ready for battle is many of you won't make it past today. How is it that that kind of monologue is supposed to be motivating? Because both of those speeches, the speaker acknowledges that there are things that are far more important than comfort and even life. There are things that are better than life. I think that today, Christians in our age would do well to consider that principle. Because I believe it's a biblical truth. We're about to look at a passage today that points to a famous character in history who believed that principle and acted upon it. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to go through the same section we covered last week, but we're going to move forward a couple of verses, pick up where we left off. We'll be in verses 23 through 28. Through this entire section, we're being encouraged by the author to have faith. The author here is picking great moments in Hebrew history that highlight the faith of Old Testament saints. He's telling these Hebrew people, you remember Abraham. You, re you remember Abel. You remember, and he fills in the blank, he continues, to, he tells them Noah. He fills in the blank, last week we covered Moses' parents had great faith. This week we're going to look at the life of Moses beyond just his birth. His parents were commended for having such faith in God that they did not fear the king's edict. They were motivated more by their fear of God than they were the commands of a king. Now, just like last week, I'm going to flip back to the Old Testament book of Exodus. For the historical context of this passage, I think it'll do well for us to have a real clear picture of what happened back then to understand why it is that the author of Hebrews draws on a few particular points. I think it'll be helpful for us. And then I'll conclude with two observations regarding this text. So if you have your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to just read through 23 through 28 right now out loud, and then we'll go back uh, through a couple verses at a time. Starting in verse 23. By faith, 
Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we read through this famous passage of the Bible, one that has been read out loud, preached upon for thousands of years by Christians, I pray that you would help for us to be encouraged by it, that we would understand what it says, that we would see what is written here and it apply to our lives, that it would lead us to a greater trust in your word, a greater love for you, a greater love for lost people, and a clearer view of what brings joy. We pray that you would do all this through this text in Jesus' good name. Amen. I'll go ahead and put the verses we're going to cover up here in Hebrews right now. Going back to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith... Moses, Uh, if you've been with us for a handful of weeks, you might remember that Hebrews 11 says this about a dozen different times. By faith, fill in the blank, somebody, someone's being commended. Hey, just like this person, be like this person. Previous passage, uh, the previous verse was about Moses' parents. They hid him. They didn't allow him to be handed over to the king and be killed when he was born, according to the king's edict, but they uh, cared for him. They kept him. They refused to acknowledge the king's order. Here, Moses himself is being lifted up as a picture of faith. This Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch to the Jews. When he grew up, he found himself in an interesting situation that's being pointed to here. But eventually, he'll go on to be the man through whom God will institute the Old Covenant, also called the Mosaic Covenant, named after him. Last week, I retold the story of Moses' birth from Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Today, we're going to go back to that passage in order to to see the next part of it. So if you want to follow along there, you can. I'm just going to read Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10 out loud. My hope is that this will give us a bit of the context. And what I would like you to listen for is not only what is being said in the original narrative that we also see revisited here, but I would like for you to, with me, Notice what is not said in the original narrative that the author in Hebrews wants us to especially consider. I'll make note of that when we get there, but I think that will be a significant thing. So I'm going to go ahead and read Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, this is a very famous Old Testament story. And the author of Hebrews doesn't mention most of it. You notice this is is what we get. His family hid him in verse 
23. In verse 24, it gets to him growing up. So we don't even see this particular story mentioned. I am expecting that this author knows his Hebrew audience is familiar with the tale. They would have known the Old Testament. They would have understood who these characters were. And that wasn't the point of the story anyway. But it would be helpful for us to see the context. Moses was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was an adopted child, adopted into that family. He wasn't raised uh, to be a slave. He wasn't raised to just be like Cinderella story under Pharaoh's daughter. He was brought in as a member of the family. He was called Pharaoh's daughter, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, excuse me. Now, Pharaoh's daughter here, this might be interesting to note. Some have suggested that she was the historical character Hatshepsut, the daughter of Tutmosis I, Pharaoh, and that she would become one of the ancient queen pharaohs of Egypt who would rule for decades. She would have been a young woman at the time of Moses' birth and died about 15 years before the Exodus. If this is the case, the fact that she names the child Moses would likely carry a dual meaning. One, Moses, it says here in the text, uh, that word sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out, because he was drawn out of the water. But also, Moses would be a derivative of Tut Moses, who was the Pharaoh, the father of this princess. Moses then would carry with him for the rest of his days a name marked by the Egyptian upbringing that he had. He was named by Pharaoh's daughter, not by his Hebrew mother. Jewish history goes on to tell us that her name, this Pharaoh's daughter's name, was Bithia. She's mentioned later in the book of First Chronicles. She eventually went on to marry a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah. And if it's true that this is the same Pharaoh's daughter, then her children would have been amongst the Israelites who left Egypt during the days of the Exodus. First Chronicles 4.17 says this about Pharaoh's daughter. These are the sons of Bithia, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Merid married. And she conceived and bore Miriam, Shammai, and Ishba, the father of Eshtemoah. So a list of genealogy, genealogies being given there in First Chronicles. But Bithia was a daughter of Pharaoh. She marries a Jewish man, and her eldest daughter she names Miriam, which is actually the, the name of uh, Moses' oldest sister. The fact that her eldest daughter carries that name might give a bit of credibility to the view that this is that Bithia that Jewish history records. But here's the point. This Pharaoh's daughter was a real historical figure. This isn't just a mythology that we look back to, to point to, to kind of think about uh, as a reference in history to, to some mythical figure, Hercules type of character. Paul Bunyan and his blue ox. This was a historical person. She actually existed. She actually lived. We can trace her back to history. She's one of two women we know at least. And perhaps Bithia is at Shepsut. Nevertheless, regardless of which daughter of Pharaoh this was, Moses certainly grew up amongst the Egyptian nobility. And that's the point. Not much more, however, is written in either of these accounts about Moses' upbringing. You'll notice in the Exodus account, we don't get much more. In fact, the very next verse after she named him Moses because she drew him out of the water, the next verse, he's already 40 years old. We get nothing there. The Hebrews account right here says nothing about his upbringing, just the fact that he did grow up. But there's a third retelling of this story in the Bible, and you can find it in the book of Acts, where Stephen is giving his address in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish uh, religious council. He's kind of showing his religious cred. He knows Jewish history. He's even importing things that would have been known just through oral history or perhaps written history that we, we don't have this day. So I'm going to read for you what Stephen said about this exact time period as well in Acts chapter 7. I'll show it to you so you can see the words up here. And when he, Moses, was exposed, that's laid in the basket at the Nile River, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So you see here, there's a few more details given about Moses' upbringing that we wouldn't have found in other places. Namely, his education and the ways of the Egyptians, and a mention of his aptitudes. Right? He was mighty in his words and deeds. This actually, if, you, if you're familiar with the Moses story, where later when he is called by God 
and God tells him to go back to Pharaoh, he's like, oh, I, I'm slow of speech. He was a liar because he, that was, that was a, it sounds to me like that was just an excuse that he's perfectly fine in his words and deeds. And the Lord uh, knew that. So this is interesting to see. We also get the important note that when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Hebrews. They came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. I'm going to read his visiting of his, uh, his family members, his brothers of Israel. Back to the Exodus account, Exodus 2, the next verse. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So this is the famous story. This is the turning point for Moses' life. Forty years in the lap of luxury, and an event takes place, a day where he decides to go out and check out his uh, fellow Israelites, perhaps for the first time. We have no telling in Scripture about him having any interaction with them prior to this time. And he goes out, and this fateful day changes everything for him. He steps in. To an incursion, he watches a slave driver beating a Hebrew slave. He knows that's a Hebrew, fellow Hebrew, one of my people, being beaten. And sometimes the movies get this wrong. There's lots of movies and plays about this particular event, and oftentimes it doesn't want to convey Moses as a murderer. So it shows Moses as like he accidentally gets in a tussle, and then the slave driver dies. It's all an accident. I didn't expect what's going down. No, that's not what the Bible says. He turned, he looked this way and that way. He saw no one was looking. And so he premeditated, he killed the slave driver and buried his body in the sand. That's what he did. He might have felt he had a good reason for it, but it was murder nonetheless. The most famous deliverer of the people was a murderer, this Moses. Additionally, there's an historical note here as well, that the, the king, the pharaoh at the time, he found out about the event, and he doesn't just go, whatever, Egyptians can kill whoever they want. Nobility can kill whoever they want. It's not a big deal. Not like that. The king sets out to go kill Moses. He puts, it, puts out to go get Moses. Moses then turns and flees, runs into the deserts of Midian. He'll end up staying out there for another 40 years. Now back to our text today. Let's look back again at our Hebrews 11 text. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses knew that he was a Hebrew. He knew he'd been adopted, yet he did not grow up amongst his own people. He grew up as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He grew up knowing who he was, that he was adopted, and yet lived in the palace amongst the royalty. Furthermore, the fact that he was grown up, remember Acts tells us that he was 40, at the point that he decided to leave the palace, that helps us see that he was not merely rebelling out of the, out of the impulses of an impetuous uh, teenager, right? You might have that in mind. Uh, imagine the teenager having a brawl with his parents and an emotional outburst screaming, you're not my parents, and then running out to his outcast friends or something like that. That's not the image that we're given here. This is a 40-year-old man, makes the concerted plan to leave his home and out of principle, principle, he made this choice, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses chose to forsake his Egyptian privilege, the life of luxury that he had long enjoyed, and he turns from that. Now, this gives us insight into a few things. First, I want you to look at the, the last half of the, the, the sentence here, the, the end of verse 25. It says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What was, what, what was sinful about his life? Well, I want you to remember that nearly everything about the lives of the Egyptian aristocracy would have been directly tied to the worship of false gods. All the benefits that Moses would have received in that position were not merely because he was in an upper-class home or that his adopted family was politically connected, but because the royal family received material gains as an act of worship from their subjects. This is the way that they would have survived in their position, how their station was secure. They weren't voted into power. They weren't just serving the people. They were considered not just royalty, but deity. The Pharaoh himself was worshipped as a god. And all the money given, all the taxes accepted and received from the peoples would have been received as an act of worship to their divine king on earth, the Pharaoh and his family. Fleeting pleasures of sin. Furthermore, and this might be more the point here, a life of coddled indulgence is bad for the soul. We are not made for this kind of life yet, here. We're made for war. I made that case over the course of the last couple of months through a variety of different texts, but we are made for war. This is going to be an age and a time of trial that we are going to have to battle even inside of our own hearts, flesh versus spirit. We're going to have to face suffering and tribulation from the world around us. That's what we're made for, not the coddling of the fleeting pleasures of sin. In fact, it's interesting to note that after Moses leaves Egypt, God will work on him for another 40 years in the harsh wilderness as a shepherd. Why? Why does he need four more decades out in the wild? Well, I think in part because while the education and familiarity with Egyptian politics would have been very helpful for Moses and what God was going to have him do, Moses needed another four decades of harsh training in the wild before he would be ready for the task to which God would call him. He was a shepherd, lived on the sand, not in the palace, knew that he couldn't return back to the lap of luxury. In fact, it's kind of intriguing that some of the most significant leaders in Israelite history were shepherds. Abraham, Jacob, Moses. In fact, most uh, most of the Israelites... In Egypt were shepherds. That was the primary role that they they operated. David was prepared as a shepherd before being called to be the king. This is quite significant, especially where the New Testament talks about Jesus as the ultimate good shepherd. But this verse tells us something else about Moses. It tells us something about his character. He made the choice to come alongside his people, even though doing so would subject him to the same abuse they were experiencing. As we said earlier, Moses' choice to kill the Egyptian slave driver was premeditated. He knew what he was doing. And he knew the cost. And he calculated at some pace, I don't know the rate, how quickly he did this. Did he have one minute? Did he have five minutes to think about it? Did he walk around for about an hour thinking about the fact that this went down? And after he realized that 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 particular oppressor was by himself, then he did, I, I don't know. Text doesn't say. But it was premeditated. And he was willing to pay the cost. More on this in a moment. But he was at a crossroads where he could choose to either associate with the people of God or go back to the fleeting pleasures of sin. Christians, brothers and sisters, today we need a boost of this same kind of character. I want you to consider churches like Grace Life Church up in Alberta, Canada. If you've been watching any of that, following what's been going on with that church, Pastor James Coates up there put in leg irons at some point, orange jumpsuit, put into prison because he wanted for his people to worship together. The government said only 15% of your people are allowed to be in here. The Bible says you may not forsake the gathering of the saints. You may not neglect that. You may not make a habit of it. A few weeks maybe, a month maybe, can't. A year later, I have to honor my Lord. The pastor says we're meeting anyway. We must worship our God. Put in prison. Later, his church was put in prison. The building itself was annexed, stolen by the government. Put three fences around. Not one, not two, three fences. One of the fences had a mask. You guys saw this on the news, right? Craziness that was going down. Makes me think about this. 
Why is it that a guy like Pastor James Coates is being watched and observed? Because he has a kind of character that is uncommon, unfortunately, amongst Christians today, or at least not evident to many. Now, it is true that many Christian churches, unfortunately, have chosen to close their doors. They were, they were pressured for a variety of different reasons. They closed their doors, indefinitely canceled corporate worship, and even prohibited the gathering of their people in homes. Lots of churches did this. The question is, why? Why would a church do that? Now, I have strong thoughts on this, but I, I acknowledge, even with my strong impulses, I acknowledge that there are many different reasons. It's, it can be complicated in a lot of different areas why Christian churches have chosen to do what they did. But one of my major concerns, at the very least, is that many of those churches made those choices out of fear. Either fear of being thought less of by others. Oh, what do the world think if we, don't, if we don't do this? They were concerned about their damaged public reputation. We want the world to like us. They said, if we do this, they'll like us. Maybe. That's one of my concerns, is that churches rolled over to that too quickly. Another concern is that people operated out of fear of genuine persecution, actual persecution. Well, we might actually get shut down. Our people might go to prison. It's very possible. But I think that we need a reviving of the kind of fearless moxie that led the saints of old to rejoice in the face of persecution. Rejoice in the face of persecution. Do you guys remember the, in the, the New Testament, shortly after Jesus ascends back into heaven, leaves his apostles, sends the Holy Spirit, they are, they are roaring. They cannot be stopped in preaching the gospel. The gospel is taking over the world. At one point, the Jewish leaders get the apostles together and they say, we tell you, you may not preach this gospel anymore. And they're like, too bad, we're doing it anyway. So they go out, they preach again. Sanhedrin goes again, gets them, brings them back. We told you to stop preaching, and we told you we weren't stopping. So they take it to the next level, and, and the Sanhedrin have them beaten, flogged. These apostles say, we, we must obey God rather than men. You can do whatever you want. We're not going to disobey our Lord. And after they were beaten, this is what it says about them in Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Awesome. Awesome. They did not head out of there all entitled and disgruntled. How dare they beat us? They didn't walk out dejected. I don't want to go through that again. I will stop preaching. They walked out rejoicing. What do you think? The Jewish leaders thought as they went going, I think they learned their lesson. <laughs> you watch them go and they look, uh, we're going to lose this one. That's how Christians respond to times of suffering like that. It's supernatural. You and I don't have it in us. We're not just, we, don't, we can't conjure that up out of thin air. The Lord gets, gifts that to his saints. We consider it a pleasure to suffer. It's an amazing, beautiful, and wonderful thing. Here, Moses refused comfort and knowingly chose suffering, an intense kind of suffering, a potential of death, at the very least, to have to run away. It's amazing. Now, I, I want to answer, why is it that I keep bringing up the whole events of this last year so often and the mandates and that kind of stuff? For a reason. Because in a plethora of ways, this past year has been an, an enormous loss for many Christian churches. Many Christians and their compliance and their rolling over to the ways of the world, I'm concerned, has damaged the view of the gospel in the eyes of many. Of course, it can never actually damage the gospel. But we need to run the game tape over and over and over and watch it on slow-mo every play to learn what went wrong so we can adjust and not make those mistakes again in the future, right? That's what the wise team does. Something happened. Let's replay it, replay it, pause. Okay, look what happened here. That's what we have to do to prepare ourselves. It would be folly for us to overlook and forget about the events of this past year. Let's not worry about it. Let's forget it. Not learn from that. Not grow from it. I strongly suspect that recent events have merely been the beginning of a much worse hostility that will be directed at us 
and our children in years to come. We must learn from and prepare. We must become men and women of principle. Principle. We have a reason. We have a reason that we want to worship together. And it's not because of stubborn love for freedom and liberty. It's not because we're American. It's because we're Christian. Pharaoh made a wicked, wicked decision to kill the Hebrew babies. Moses was supernaturally protected from that, but the mistreatment of them continued, and it was for a purpose. It was because Pharaoh was afraid of the power of the people and their God. And so Moses decided to step right underneath that mistreatment and take the full brunt of it amongst his people. We must be women and men of principle. We must do it. For so many people in the world, the driving principle out there is personal comfort. Whatever is the path of least resistance, but what's the principle here? It's like I introed with those monologues. Sometimes suffering and even death is better than comfort. Sometimes suffering is better than comfort. Sometimes obedience to God is better than health. Always. Moses acted on this principle. He knew it was better. Listen, this is crazy. Moses knew it was better to die amongst God's people than to thrive amongst God's enemies. I'd rather be there and die than here and thrive. That's an amazing choice. It's like when Nazis are marching Jews off to concentration camps and they just missed one Jew somehow and that Jew goes, wait, 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 don't forget me. Christians have done that over the ages. Christians have thrown themselves into harm's way. (laughs) Because they knew that sometimes it's better to die than to live in this life. You and I may not have to face death. In fact, it's probably unlikely we will have to face death. But we must be willing to live according to this principle in our own circumstances. This isn't just like a, well, God, if someday martyrdom is the choice, obviously we'll follow you. But until we get there, we're going to continue in the fleeting pleasures of sin. No, no, obviously you know that's wrong, don't you? No, now, right now in our stations in life. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew that if you made a particular decision, things would get way harder for you? You knew you were at the crossroads of something, a turning point. And whatever happens next is going to define what's going to go down for a long time. Some of you know right now, you have a thought in mind, oh, I've been in that position, or maybe I'm in it right now. And others of you might need some help imagining it. Imagine this, at work, working in the marketplace, inclusivity training, new rules, get together, new indoctrination. This is what you have to know. They undermine everything the Bible has to say about sexuality, gender, those kinds of things, truth. And someone turns to you and goes, Rich, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? Do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? You ever been in that situation, that kind of thing? And you know, oh no. Because you know, whatever comes out of your mouth next is going to be really consequential, isn't it? What do you say? Kids, you're going to grow up and many of you are going to be trained in all kinds of different skill sets. You're going to go to college. You're going to sit in front of an atheist science professor. This is so typical. And someone's going to call you out. Do, do you honestly believe that ancient book over what all these modern geniuses are saying? They say nothing came or something came from nothing. You don't believe that? You're going to be in that position someday, very likely. Something like that. How about this? How about you're sharing the gospel with your neighbor? You finally, Lord, just gave him an opportunity, and you're actually talking about real things, and you're like, Lord, we've been praying for this. We share this with them. And you're, you're trying to explain to them why it is you want them to turn, turn from their sins and turn in faith to Jesus. And they pause and go, do you think I'm going to hell? What do you say? You've been in that situation? Situations like that? Where you know that whatever you say might impact the relationship with that person for forever. They're never going to be the same situation. This is a define the relationship moment. 
This is a define the relationship with the workplace moment. This is a define the relationship in education or with that professor, my grade, my future in that moment. Something's going to come down and you're going to have to decide, should I say clearly what is true and right? Or not. You know what tends to happen in those moments? You might have it in your mind right now. When you're confronted with those kind of questions, in real time, your brain starts to fire on all cylinders, your neurons start crackling, your mind starts trying to figure a way out. Uh, there's got to be a way to answer this where I can be right and not suffer. Uh, what is it? Right? Someone says, oh, do you think I'm going to hell? And you go, oh, oh I don't know anyone's heart. Whew. That wasn't the question. You guys know that, don't you? It's an easy answer. If you don't have Jesus, you will die and go to hell. You will die in your sins. You'll be judged. Yes, of course. No question about that. It's not a hard one. If you hate Jesus and die, you won't have to worship him forever. But those are hard moments, aren't they? They're real hard moments. I'm not, I'm not pretending. Those are hard moments. It's not death. It's not, it's not being mistreated and beaten and, and flogged and in the position of a slave. It's not that. Perhaps. But those things are real, aren't they? And doing those things and standing strong and doing what's right is what prepares us for these moments. Is what preps us for when it really will matter, when bleeding might be the response So how can you know what's the right thing to do? Brothers and sisters, you have got to know the word. Your mind's going to try to send out those little attorneys to solve the problem and and give you a quick little line, a little politically correct line where you don't actually apologize, but you kind of acknowledge a few little factoids here or there, and you avoid the question. Listen, that's going to go down, and you're going to compete against that with the word. I, I know what's true right here. The Bible says, so you're saying if I don't have Jesus, I can't go to heaven? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. We must know how to answer. We must know our word. Brothers and sisters, think about this. Your opinion is irrelevant. Your opinion is not worth suffering for. Somebody hearing your opinion in those moments, well, I don't know, I don't know. I think that maybe, who cares about the who knows maybe? Truth is what matters. And you knowing what the word of God says will equip you in those moments to do what is right. And be willing in that, in that crossroads moment to make the right choice and not the easy choice. Additionally, you need to just run the play in your head. If you've not thought about, what am I going to do that day that somebody comes to me and demands that I acknowledge that man who was a man yesterday and everyone knew he was a man wants to now be called a woman, a she. What are you going to do? You need to process through that. What if a family member, a dear friend says, hey, I'm homosexual, I'm a lesbian, I want you to come to my wedding. Are are you going to do it or not? Have you walked through in your mind what the process is? Have you walked through in your mind what the process is when someone says, listen, your kids can stay in my class and we're going to teach them to hate God and to worship Baal. Or you have to go. Have you processed through what are you going to do when you have to make a hard decision that will change trajectories for you? I think you need to run the play. Expect the day will come. Have a plan. And you need to pray that God will give you wisdom and courage. Wisdom to know what's right to do and courage to execute. I don't know if Moses did that before this time. We're not granted that. We don't get anything more than what we see here. What we do know is he knew he was one of God's people. And in this moment, he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose that. And at the root of all of this, you must have an immovably stubborn resolve to please God rather than men. Immovably stubborn resolve to please God rather than men. If this thing will displease God, I I will die before I do it. You have to have that. Know what his word says to know where those lines are. Something in Moses compelled him to choose suffering over pleasure. What was it? What was the impulse? What was the motivation? What was it in Moses? Was he just like, ah, I've, I've lived with pleasure for so long. Let's live with, with uh, suffering. Curious? Was he some masochist who just wanted pain? No. Look what the very next verse says. He, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. 
for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We're going to finish on this verse. I'm just going to give you two observations from this verse that I think are the point of this passage. I think are why the author of Hebrews was inspired to put this in writing for us to read today. First, this line, reproach of Christ. In what way did Moses relate to Christ? He came 1,500 years before Jesus. He didn't know Jesus' name. And while he didn't, did know that God promised to send a Messiah, he almost certainly did not understand, just as the Pharisees would centuries later, that the Messiah would have to suffer at the hands of his own people. So in what way does this author intend that Moses did consider the reproach of Christ anything? Because although Moses had all the luxuries and prosperities of royalty, he forsook his high station in order to fully identify with the people of God, just as Jesus did. Jesus was seated in far higher position than Moses. And Jesus' suffering was far greater than that of Moses. And Jesus chose to descend to become one of us, to be partakers of the flesh, to put on human form, to become one of us, to live a life of all the ills that we'll have to deal with all throughout our lives, and then be spit upon, mocked, scorned, beaten, tortured, and then killed, crucified. And Jesus chose to do that. He chose to take on that reproach. Earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 2, it says, For because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus not only provides salvation in so doing, he also provides an example for us. Make it possible for us to live like he did. You and I, to live in faith, will absolutely have to make hard choices in our lives. To choose right and suffering over easy and luxury, easy and trial-free life. Jesus is the perfect example of all of it. And while Moses may not have known that that was the reproach of Jesus Christ, and maybe he just knew this is the way that it would have to go down for him to be associated with the people of God, he acted upon it. And that's what the author wants us, to, wants us to be reminded by, that any suffering, any suffering experienced by faithful saints, Old Testament or New or in our day today, any suffering experienced as a result of faith further associates us with Jesus. It unites us with Jesus. It gives us a, a more like-mindedness with him, an experience that we go, now we're feeling like Jesus would have felt. Moses was not a masochist. He did not have as his end goal suffering and misery. He had something else in mind. And he took on the reproach of Christ. You guys need to know this. All of us are sinners and separated from God because of our own sinful wickedness. But in God's great goodness, he sends his son. And how is he doing this? For what purpose? To demonstrate his great love for us. And Jesus came from way higher than Moses. He went way lower than Moses would have to suffer in his death, in his torture. And Jesus did all that out of great love so that anyone who believes in him and sees that all of our sin needs punishment, that he went to the cross, and our punishment can be given to Jesus on the cross, he can bear that punishment, and by belief in him, can we be exonerated? Can we be justified in God's eyes and have eternal life? And that Jesus rose from the dead, proving once and for all he was who he said he was, that death could not hold him, and that we likewise, if we believe in him, will raise to new life someday as well. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus. You need to turn away from, forsake all of the pleasures and the treasures of this earth and look to the one true ultimate treasure, which is Jesus. And that's the next point. Moses was not just seeking suffering. Moses was seeking wealth. Moses, why would you do that? Because I want treasure. Wait, wait, Moses, you're choosing suffering amongst the people of God. Why? Because I'm aiming at treasure. Look at this. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he was looking to the reward. This is super significant. I said earlier, one of the most significant parts, I think, of this particular passage is not what is also seen back in Exodus and what is seen in Acts 7, but what is not present there, but that the Holy Spirit tells the writer of Hebrews to put this in. He wants to particularly point out these things. This wasn't written in the narrative account in Exodus. That's just telling us what happened. But this is designed to encourage us towards a particular action. And this author wants us to think in the same way. Moses had his sights set on a greater treasure. He does not set his sights on pain, but reward. And this is oftentimes missed in the sharing of the Christian gospel and people understanding what it is that motivates us. What is it that is inside of our hearts? It is we're seeking great joy. We want the treasure that is greater than any of those on this earth. Uniting ourselves with Christ, being counted as one of his people. I want to show you how Jesus says this. He says this in a variety of different ways, but probably the clearest way I can find here is in Matthew 13, 44. This is how he talks about the growth of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Do you see the image? This this is the gospel and the gospel spread. This man does not add to what he already has and try to steal that treasure out of that ground and add it to what he already has. I want to keep all my treasure and go get some more. That's not the parable. It is also not that the man said, God wants me to have the treasure in the field, so I will reluctantly part ways with my treasure and trade it for a lesser one. No. Look at, all, look at how Jesus says it. In his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. He's, oh man, I'm going to cash out. That's, are you sure you really want to give it? Yeah, you can have all of this. Everything, everything, everything. Did I miss anything? All of it. My whole house, my estate, my property, my inheritance is all yours. You can have all of it. Why? Because I want that field. That field is better. And he goes singing and dancing his way over to that field to buy it because he knows what's there. This is our embrace of the Christian gospel. If you've ever tried to share it with other people, they're like, well, man, you think I'm going to hell? You don't think I'm... Listen, we want joy for you. You are having your joy robbed here and in eternity. I want better for you. I want for you to have the greatest possible joy. That's why I want you to embrace the truth. Give up all that junk Everything else you've had on, on, in your home, everything else that's been your material possessions, everything else you've idolized and worshiped that's not God, give up all of it. All of it is junk. The real treasure's over here. This is what's so fascinating about this. Moses had his eyes set on something better, better, greater treasures than all of Egypt. He would know. He lived amongst those treasures. He was the recipient of them. And he gave all of it up, not out of a desire for pain, but for great joy, for a greater treasure. A life devoted to Jesus, although it may bring momentary affliction into our lives today, is better than any earthly treasure. We do what we do for joy. This is why Christians can engage the world today with cheerfulness. We can watch the whole thing in all kinds of messes, and we can try to right the wrongs, and we can try to do what the Christians should have always been doing, subduing the earth, bringing it under the dominion of King Jesus. But we do that cheerfully. Why? Because it's a joy to be a part of this work, and we get to share that joy with others. You and I need to learn how to embrace momentary afflictions now, not only as joy, but in search of greater joy. And that's two things. Are you you sniffing that out? That's two things being said here. Because Moses did endure affliction. Because those apostles really were beaten. Jesus really did go to the cross. Christians today really will go to jail and be tortured. That really will happen. But yet we can go out rejoicing. We can consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because there's something about giving ourselves for something better that 
we were designed for. This is why we can be motivated to go and suffer, go and die. And that is motivating. We do so as an act of the pursuit of joy today and in the eternal joy that will come. And it's the way we share the gospel too. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that we would be able to learn what is totally counterintuitive to our flesh. That giving up of comforts now actually produce greater joy. And Father, in this amazing paradigm, you don't just say, Christians, be miserable on life, uh, on, on your life here so that you'll have joy someday. But the giving up of the things now is what brings great joy. Father, I'm so grateful that that is true. Lord, you have given us your word. Uh, you have already prepared us for this thinking before we got to this passage in Hebrews chapter 11. We were encouraged by the believers back in Hebrews chapter 10, all of whom it said that they endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, just like Moses, just like Jesus. And those Christians, Father, had compassion on those in prison, and they joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. Lord, we do not deserve all this blessing, eternal joy and joy in pursuit of it. Father, we do not deserve those things, and we are so grateful for them. I pray that you would teach them to us. Help us to not fear the worldly afflictions. Help us to not let that dominate us. Help us to pursue the principle that Moses somehow knew by your grace, Lord, that we would be willing to forsake luxuries now for something better. Teach us how to do that, Father. Teach us how to do it before we even need to know how. And anyone who's hearing this, Lord, and who does not know, trust in you, believe in you, help them to hear that gospel as it is, that it is for their great joy and for your great glory that we desire for them to repent of sins, sell all they have, and go by the field to get the true treasure. We love you, Lord, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.